Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Miles Wernz about immigration in the United States. Dr. Wernz is the Director of Baptist Studies and Associate Professor of Theology at Abilene Christian University. He helps us understand the migrant nature of our own faith and unpacks the history of immigration and its current political and social context. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Because It Is. I'm delighted to welcome my friend, Dr. Miles Wernz, uh, to the podcast today uh, to talk about immigration. Um, this is uh, something that shows up in our news every single week, uh, but there are real human repercussions for how we think about Im- immigration and uh, live, in, live into those ideals. And so when we thought about who could best guide us in our thinking and praxis uh, about immigration, uh, Dr. Wernz was the first person that came to our mind. So, uh, Miles, I have a lot of plans for you on the podcast that we'll get to in due time, Mm -hmm. uh, but thanks for joining us today to talk about immigration. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess let's start with the biggest picture and maybe the most important one uh, for those of us who follow Jesus. you know, for us, immigration isn't primarily a political topic. It's something uh, born in our scriptures of the people of God on the move as immigrants, the people of God showing hospitality to immigrants, even a God who is on the move uh, here, there, and yon. And so how should we primarily think about immigration within a biblical and theological frame? That's a, I think that's exactly the right place to begin. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get into all this, but the way in which uh, immigration is typically discussed usually gets broken down into partisan talking points, which I think both both inca- encapsulate a lot of important things, but uh, tend to fragment um, the way in which I think as Christians we should be thinking about migration. So let's so let's start there. Yeah. So I think scripturally the presumption. Uh, the presumption about who the people of God are and what it means to be the people of God is pri- primarily linked to a migration, a migrating identity. Hmm. Um, so sometimes when we think about what it means to be human or the kind of things that we eat as, as societies, we are imagined immediately run toward uh, territory based or uh, kind of more stable stable forms of living. Um, but that that's not the default at all within mm. scripture. Uh, once you get past about Genesis 2, then the primary emphasis seems to be on um, like a people on the move. Uh, so the first thing that happens uh, is that you have, you know, Adam and Eve are moving out of the garden. Cain is on his way to whatever city he's headed to. Um Noah has to leave his home because of the flooding you have, you know, so it's just kind of the, in fact, like in Genesis uh, 11 and 12, Genesis 
12. This is why they don't let me te teach Bible is because I'm bad at citations. But you're, you're into 12. theology, right? None of Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's my yeah. wheelhouse. Um, so in Genesis, when you get to the Tower of Babel, it's in part a rebuke. What what's part of what's happening there is, is, is a rebuke against this notion that we need to, we need to uh, rebuke it of this notion that we somehow need to keep going, that we need to keep spreading out and we keep need to keep moving. The people don't want to do that. They want to stay stable. They want to have something uh, which links them together in a territory based sort of thing. Um, and that's, you know, that's fundamentally at odds with what you find repeated in the first couple of chapters, first few chapters of Genesis, when God tells them to uh, be fr fruitful and multiply and go into all the earth. Um, so I think from the very beginning, scripture just kind of presumes that to be the people of God and to be uh, migratory is like, that's not a problem. That seems to be the basis. Right. I mean, we can, I mean, you can continue to extend this out. Once you get into, they have a, uh, once you get, we could talk about Exodus, we could talk about um, kind of the, the short layover that the people of God have in terms of the United Kingdom or even the divided kingdom, but then that relatively speaking is a kind of a short blip because once again, you're, you're out into exile and then you're back, uh, you're, you're back having to contend with uh, this question of what it means to be the people of God in a place that is not your own and a place where you're not at home. Mm -hmm. um, continuing on to the new Testament, even uh, if we're, if we're looking at the life of Jesus, that Jesus's life is one of uh, constant movement and constant migration that he's one without a place to lay his head. Yeah. Um, that a primal that, call to follow, right? Right. Exactly. It's yeah. exactly. And to, to be to be a disciple of this one who has no place to lay his head is to be a disciple who follows, mm -hmm. right? And this this continues on through Acts. I mean, it it gets talked about in the language of missions, but I think what we what we lose there is again this fundamental understanding that to be the people of God is to be a people of God willing to move and willing to be on on the move mm -hmm. so it just kind of it just continues all the way through scripture this motif of uh migration not just as something to be overcome or to be dealt with but something which seems to be fundamentally blessed by god as the people do so theologically then i think that the biggest frame for thinking about migration is uh that is one which knits that together, this whole motif of to be the people of God is to be on the move together with this notion that um, God is a hospitable God toward mm -hmm. that, which is not God. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big theological questions that my students often wrestle with is why is there something rather than nothing? Right. Like we talk about God as all like uh, the aseity of God, that the God is, God is fully God independent of doing anything. Um, so why is there something rather than nothing? And one of the answers that there's a writer, Joshua Jip, that I have learned a lot from um, in one of his books, he, he talks about the fundamental hospitality of the act of creation, mm -hmm. that God creates uh, space for that which is not God. Um, and so to be the people of God is to be this, this people who reflect that in their practice and then their, their lives together. Um, not thinking of their lives in terms of uh, territorial ownership or, or, or boundedness for its own sake, uh, but just kind of realizing that we are a people who have been called to follow and to move. And um, yeah, we need to be 
people willing to do that and to be hospitable toward those who are also on the move and those who are also traveling. Just listening to you uh, sort of trace that biblical arc, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that uh, struck me is it seems like one of the primary collisions between the monotheism of Israel and the polytheism of most of its neighbors, you know, Canaanite religion, Mm -hmm. you know, the polytheistic faith was so very territorial. And, And there are places even in Israel's thought and practice, that it feels like Yahweh is territorial. Mm-hmm. And yet the universality uh, that Israel learns when they're thrust into exile, when mm-hmm. you have to go into another place and you realize that God goes with you and, and you meet Yahweh there as well. Mm-hmm. So just that collision between the territorialness of many polytheistic faiths that were Israel's neighbors and the universality of Israel's monotheism. Um, I think that there's some wisdom in how we think about immigration, even in terms of the way that they saw the world and the jurisdiction of God, right? Right. Yeah, I know. I think that's right. Um, That I think what what happens, and this is what this is what is Israel gets one of the things that Israel gets criticized for um, within the within the Old Testament is the ways in which it conflates being a particular people of God and being a uh, that that particular God requires particular territory. Mm-hmm. Right. So all through the Old Testament, like the lesson, one of the lessons that Israel is having to learn is how to be the people of this particular God, right? Right. They're learning it in the desert. They're learning it in Israel. They're learning it in exile. Um, But God is able to be this particular God in movement, right? right? So in the tabernacle, like they're learning how to be the people of this God. Um, But this God has no, like, has no one geography that God is confined to, right? That God is literally (laughs) like on the move, uh, through the through the first part of scripture, um, it's only when you get the conflation of particularity and territory mm. that the trouble becomes right. like you get into trouble. Um, and so within the law, like I think that the the law very well understands the difference between particularity and territory. Um, so in the law, you have a couple of different instances in which uh, the law prescribes that. When you have outsiders that are among you, you treat them as equals. And I think it, I was, I was thinking about this this week that part of the reason that it does this is because it's not trying to efface differences between, say, the people of Israel and, uh, and anyone who's kind of passing through Israel. It's not trying to like negate that difference, but it is trying to say that we are all fundamentally this, like we're fundamentally all on journey together. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's where, that's, that's where the trouble comes is kind of when the people of God try to be particular, but they try to be particular in terms of territory, right? Right. There's nothing wrong with the people of God being the people of God and behaving in certain ways that are befitting God. Um, but the problem comes is when you start linking all sorts of like territorial assumptions into that, right? Exactly. That we have to be the people of God in this place. And thus we have to defend this territory, because if we don't defend this territory, then we lose our identity as the people of God, right? That's when the problem comes. Right. 
So um, I would invite the listeners as we proceed in this conversation uh, and sort of move from a telescope to a microscope, just to keep this framing, let, let this framing hold that before we talk about policy or history or whatever, this topic is, we believe, best discussed born of the nature of God and born of the nature of what it means to be God's people and what we've learned of this particular God in the particular story that we find ourselves in. Uh, but there is a place to think about our history, especially as uh, 21st century Americans. And so, Miles, I know that you've done some work on this. I wonder if you could give a brief thumbnail sketch of maybe the high points of migratory history mm, and yeah. the policies that have shaped it in the history. Yeah, so history of like migration policy in the US is super interesting. So I'm going to give I'm going to give a couple of key moments and then maybe uh like a brief account of like what has shifted here. So prior to and I'm going to be super broad in this. Uh prior to 1924 there wasn't a whole lot of national immigration policy. You had, I mean, you have like the Naturalization Act of 1790, in which it kind of just kind of lays the basis that anybody can come in. Well, not really anybody. It says specifically free white persons can come in um, and be naturalized. We'll get to that here in a minute. Uh, but that's kind of like the, the first, as far as like the procedure, it was basically like any able-bodied person was able to come in. Um, now, there's all sorts of things that begin to complicate that long before you get to 1924. Um, you have like the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 that annexes large parts of Mexico or large parts of Mexican territory, like Arizona, California, New Mexico, that overnight people become part of the US who have no affiliation and no kind of history of being a part of the US. They're just, congratulations, you're now part of America, right? Um, and then you have uh, in 1882, you have a ban that's placed on anyone from China being able to migrate. And that stands at that, that was in place until 1943. Like there was no, like hardly any Asian immigration. There was no Chinese immigration until 1943 and hardly any Asian immigration until 1965. Um, so I bring up those dates to say that long, like one of the enduring tensions that appears is this question of like, who gets to be in, right? Who gets to be a part of this nation? And from the jump, like it is pretty racist. Right. It's restricted to, as the Naturalization Act of 1790 says, free white persons. But all along the way, we know that there are other people that are being incorporated within the American project who don't fit that description, who find themselves kind of brought in, whether it is uh, Chinese laborers who are coming in to California to help build the railroads and to kind of do work there or all of the folks who get incorporated within the treaty after the after the war in 1848. Um, there's all these folks that kind of like find them, and that's not to, that's like, that's not even to mention all of the folks that find themselves emancipated after slavery, right? right? So you have all these folks like in America already that don't fit the description of like who should, uh, of who the 
like the initial framers of immigration policy thought should be in America. And so by 1924, you have all of these folks that are here and they don't really know how to kind of deal with this. And so in 1924, they deal with it probably in the worst way possible, which is to introduce an immigration act that specifically limits migration according to a quota system. And they base that quota system on current like demographics from 10 years prior, which largely favor Western European migration. And so basically from 1924 forward, any migration coming into the States had to mirror current demographics of the States in States in 1924, which was largely Western European. And so everything between 1924 and 1965 then was quota restricted to maintain that demographic image from like 1914. Despite the fact that you have all of this other stuff that like all of these other people that are already here and already present. So um, Calvin Coolidge, who was the vice president and uh, said in this essay, and this, I think this kind of like, this was, you can go back and read kind of the minutes when they're debating this law in 1924. And it's just, it's really terrible. But he says, he says this, and this isn't, this is an essay in good housekeeping, right? He says, biological laws tell us that certain divergent people will not mix or blend. The Nordics, Western European, etc., propagate themselves successfully with other races, the outcome shows deterioration on both sides. And so this is like his justification for framing the law in 1924, as he did, is like, yeah, different races don't get along. And so we need to maintain America as a primarily white space in order to do this. Yes, we have a bunch of other people here, but, you know, we're going to, we're going to explicitly make it this way. So 19, the other big moment, so there's lots of there's lots of other like fascinating things that we could point to, but the next big moment is 1965. So 1965, you have the Immigration Nationality Act, which abolishes the quota system. So it undoes everything from 1924, um, which is kind of, it's kind of like a good news, bad news sort of situation. So on the one hand, it abolishes the quota system. It opens up immigration to... Uh, to Asian immigration, to African immigration, to Eastern European immigration. And so you start to get a lot more diversity within who gets to come into, uh, who gets to come in. Um, this is where we get, this act also establishes um, migration according to family unity. So if you ever hear about like uh, family mig family reunification migration, or sometimes what's referred to as like chain migration, like this is where this starts, is in 1965, because they they realize that yeah, we need to have a migration system that really prioritizes like whole family units being able to come over, not just individuals. Mm -hmm. um, it also emphasizes kind of worker skills with respect to migration, and so it it, it does some positive things in terms of like opening up the windows, more people can migrate. We're not just gonna let Western Europeans in. We're gonna really kind of try to intentionally reflect, let migration reflect what America is already. Um, so that's the good news. The bad news is that in doing that, it it also undercuts a lot of the, the more normal forms of migration, which were already in place. What I mean by that is it deprioritized Southern immigration. And so, uh, for decades, centuries, like there had been in like 
ebb and flow coming and going between the United States and a lot of Mexico, Central America. And so what happens in 65 is that those come under, like that number gets restricted pretty heavily. And so existing family ties between the United States and its Southern neighbors kind of pay the, pay the price for immigration being opened up everywhere else. Right. So we have expanded migration in Asia, Africa, other parts of Europe, but diminished ability to migrate in the South. So you can kind of see where this is going now. Right. That there's a natural affinity for migration in some places that doesn't get prioritized. And that creates an incredible tension while emphasizing migration in places where maybe migration wouldn't have been as natural and ebb and flow. But that's that's what they did in 65. So. Mm since 65, there's only been like one mate. There's been like two other things. And these are, this is probably important for us to know. Um, there was one other act in 86. Uh, we don't normally associate like Ronald Reagan with being big on like being a champion of immigration. But in 86, he signed into law a law that gave citizenship to like 3 million people that were undocumented. Um, it was the last time that they did that. So when we think about uh, amnesty, uh, for the undocumented, just it's important to know that the last time that happened was in 86 and it happened under a Republican president. So um, it's not without precedent, probably needs to happen again. Right. Um, but the big thing that happened, and I think this is probably one of the most important things for like our consciousness of how what immigration is like, is in 2002, all immigration functions were moved under the Department of Homeland Security uh, following 9-11. And so migration in the popular consciousness moves from being, this is something that happens because we're trying to like manage labor or we're trying to think about reunification of families or something like this. And it becomes, uh, it, immigration becomes suspicious, right? Because it's being managed by the home, by Homeland Security now, which was created after 9-11 because of the attacks on, because the attacks on New York City, right? Yeah. So I think like that's important for, I think, our, our audience to realize is the way in which migration gets framed yeah. is primarily not around questions of uh, not questions of like family unification or jobs, but primarily gets framed in terms of like threat. Like, is this person coming in going to be a threat to America? Right. Right. And it, it's, it's hard to like overestimate the ways in which that affects the way that we think about migration as right. danger or threat or something that's going to compromise the U.S. Whereas uh, you can, and again, you can kind of go back and just read the, just read the stuff that that's not the way that migration was framed for a long, long time. So yeah. that's so very helpful. Just as a reminder that uh, the immigration narrative is tied up with so many other narratives about right. who we who we are as a country and who we hope to be as a country and mm. what was happening in 1924, 1882, 1965, uh, 1986, and 2002. You know that mm-hmm. historical context is oh, so yeah. very helpful, and it it is difficult to be people of peace when you begin with a combative posture. That's right. right. That's and so right. To, to think about immigration with almost a reflexual, problematic, um, 
vulnerability on our part, right? It's right. Uh, many Americans, at least in my ears, sound like they feel like the vulnerable ones in terms of immigration. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, and yet it, all of that seems to stem from this combative posture when we think about immigration. Yep. It's all, I think it's in no small part due to the fact to two things. One, that we haven't had any substantial immigration policy passed since 1986. So within our, within largely, I mean, I was born in the seventies. I don't have any, you know, so it's like, right. Like within my lifetime, one piece of major immigration policy was passed and it happened when I was nine years old. Yeah. So that's a long time. (laughs) So that there's nothing, it's, it's something that kind of gets kicked down, kicked down the road endlessly and when it does get talked about, it only gets to, it gets talked about primarily in terms of like immigration as threat. Right. 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 So just hard to overestimate the ways in which that just affects the way that popularly we think about migration. Absolutely. I wonder if you can think about other maybe misperceptions in mm-hmm. the common populace as you as you've researched immigration. Yeah. Uh, and its history. What other misconceptions do you see prevailing in the public consciousness these days? So this is this is going to be a good time for me to point uh, our listeners to maybe a couple of good um, a couple of good resources for thinking about these questions. And so everything that I'm about to say, I'm drawing from folks who do this full time, like this is their, this is their life. Uh, one that I have found incredibly uh, helpful is the National Immigration Forum. They do lots and lots of trainings. They do webinars with uh, migration lawyers, with migration professionals. Um, so the National Immigration Forum does, gr- does really great public educational kind of work. Um, if you have questions, if you're, if our audience has questions about like what the law actually is with respect to immigration, go to USCIS.gov. That's the Citizenship Resource Center, and so that has all of the frequently asked questions about like what, what, how does, how do things actually work? Mm-hmm. How does this process actually happen? What is the actual law with respect to migration? Turn off all the pundits. Turn off all the. Uh, the folks that are kind of doing this on the fly, go listen to the folks that are the professionals, right? right. Um, so a couple of the major, I think, misconceptions that happen around migration. Um, let, so let's start with kind of one that we've already mentioned, and that is like that migrants pose kind of a, a threat or that migrants are uh, a, like a major source of crime. This has been the subject of a lot of studies over the last 10 to 15 years. And one of the things that they find consistently, and here's there's like a there's a study from 2017 uh, that shows this, that crime that incarceration rates and criminality rates among not just documented migrants but also undocumented migrants is literally half of that of native-born Americans. Mm. So that the. So when we're thinking about criminality, it gets a little fuzzy uh, because to be here on, to be here in an undocumented status is itself like a misdemeanor crime, like it's a civil offense. Um, but when you're talking about like any other like incarceration rates, you're talking about arrest rates. Literally, it's uh, one quarter to one half. Wow. Right, far, far, far less than right. uh, than what we're talking about among. Um, like U.S. citizens. 
So that's, I think, stereotype number one. Very like when you start looking at the statistics, very easy to kind of diffuse this one. Um, another big one has to do with with uh, with jobs and income and how like what is the relationship between migration and uh and, and jobs again some great studies that i can I'll, I'll try to direct us to maybe in the show notes um there's a good book if you want to understand kind of the ins and outs of migration economics which is probably like the most boring part of the whole immigration stuff there's a great book by a guy named george borjas who is a migration economist at harvard like this is what he studies is the effect of migration on uh on labor and economy. Um, he has a good book called We Wanted Workers that I highly recommend. That kind of gets into it's it's pretty readable for an economics book, um, mm-hmm. which is which is pretty rare. But uh one of the things that he finds there is that it's a pretty net, like there's there's no real uh there's no real impact negatively on wages or job availability. When, that that he can determine broadly speaking with respect to migration. Hmm. Now he kind of gets into the weeds and says, now that's that's a little it's we got to be careful here because when you start com- doing some specific comparisons, it does negatively impact, say, people without a college education. Hmm. Or when you're starting to talk about like folks who don't have a lot of advanced skills, there they're the there the impact does come into play. But as far as like a big mass, uh, as far as like the migrants somehow are the reason why we're suffering inflation or migrants are the reason that uh, maybe jobs were scarce, like that's just not true, right? That's yeah. just, and it, it, migration economists will tell you this. Um, so those are probably like the two biggest, um, the two biggest things that I think that that become kind of roadblocks to people wanting to be more hospitable toward migration. That maybe immigration causes crime, or that migrants are uh, are are depressing the national economy or local economies. Like neither one of those things really bear out in the in the literature. So, yeah. uh, let me put one more on the table. If I've heard you rightly today. Um, oftentimes, I'll hear the narrative of my family came to this country legally. Right. But if our yep. families came to the country before 1924, if I'm right. hearing rightly, there yep. was no comprehensive immigration right. policy. It's basically, if the big barrier to migration prior to 1994 was getting to America. Right. Right. If you can afford to get on, if you could afford to get here, then like as long, and this is, maybe this is something else to, like there is a provision that they didn't want to accept people who would, in their words, want to be, who were going to become a public charge. Mm-hmm. And so you had to demonstrate when you got here that you had means to support yourself once you were here. Now you didn't have to show up with like a sack of money. You just had to like, you had to be in the language, like able bodied. You had to be able to do work of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was pretty, it was, it was very open-ended. Um, yeah. There was not, there were, there were no, there were not quotas in place. There were not a lot of uh, formalized restrictions. It was largely a matter of being able to get here. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So this, I mean, this gets us to kind of one of the big challenges that I think is is present within uh, immigration presently is just uh, 
is just the time that it takes to do the migration process, right? Right. Um, it is not as simple as simply, it's no longer, and it hasn't been since 1924, like as simple as just showing up and then you get to come in, right? Mm -hmm. You just go through the process and you're, and that's it. Since 1965, in part because of the, the way in which the law changed then, you have certain, uh, you have a lot of visas that are available, but they're available by a lottery system. And so you might very well apply for one of these visas and not get one for, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, so if you have family, even if you have family, like the, the wait can be a couple of years in terms of trying to get reunified, get reunified. And that's in part because like migration as, as important as it is to the functioning of a country um, is pretty well, is pretty underfunded, right? We saw this right. exacerbated during the pandemic in which you have uh, the courts were backlogged, um, that they just don't have the resources or the personnel to be able to, to do this process well, right? Mm -hmm. And so this becomes one of the major challenges is not only the fact that you have a you have a system in place which which uh, diversifies visas in a way that makes it really like the wait really really long even for those that should have priority like family reunification um, it's a really long wait and it's underfunded so um, yeah so the the so yeah if you came into America prior to, in the 1920s yep you could probably have a, it was a pretty short, short window to get in. Yeah. But after that, yeah, it, it's always been kind of a, it's been more heavily restricted. And especially in, in more recent years, um, a much like the waits continue to get longer because there's less funding and less personnel to manage uh, the process. So. Yeah. So let's dive in there a little more specifically as you look at the system as it is today. Uh, and I hear you, you saying uh, underfunded, underpersonneled, uh, which then results in a longer wait period. Right. Uh, even if you do make it, mm -hmm. uh, what do you see as the biggest uh, roadblocks, uh, I guess, in our or the biggest problems in our migration system as it is today? I mean, I, I would I would point to those um, to the to those two things. Uh, the fact that it, you have you have a lot of people that would like to come and uh, find themselves unable to get the the visas that they need, uh, and that uh, when the when, even if they qualify, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of lag time and a lot of a lot of wait time available. One of the things that that. I think that the Biden administration has been trying to do is to try to loosen up a lot of restrictions which were put on migration for the last four years prior to him. Um, so, and this is this was true not just with respect in a couple of different categories with uh, with respect to uh, the ordinary process of migration, but also with respect to refugees. Um, it's probably important for us to kind of distinguish between those those two categories. Yeah. But in both, but in both cases, um, but those processes were underfunded. They were diminished. Uh, the the quotas were lowered pretty dramatically, so that now, uh, even with quotas being kind of pulled back up and kind of the numbers being uh, being elevated again, there's just a lot of pent up demand and a lot of pent up uh, cases that were kind of waiting in limbo for years. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's a bureau so it's a it's a it's a problem it's a problem with the bureaucracy it's I, I would love to say that it's something a little bit more i don't know a little bit more sexy than bureaucracy but ultimately it's a bureaucracy problem so right so as you think about what a just immigration system and a, I guess a functional immigration mm-hmm. system looks like to you, what, how do you imagine that if, if you had all the tools at your disposal? Right. Uh, if I was king of the world, right. Yeah. What would, it, what would that look like? Yeah. Um, so I think, you ha- I think we have to think about a couple of different things. Um, one of the things, and this is from of that book that I referenced earlier by George Borjas, one of the things that he points out that that kind of changed my mind a little bit was the ways in which migration doesn't have the same effect on all portions of the U.S., mm. right? That the effects are not the same for everybody. That for some, uh, there might, like migration might economically be a great benefit um, but there are some, he's, he points out, he provides his, he does his homework on this uh, to say that, yeah, there's some for whom uh, migration can be, it, it might depress wages or it might, uh, it might be uh, like a social harm in this kind of way. So I think a just, like a just migration has to, like it has to, on the one hand, be uh, more open and more hospitable and to, and to try to find those ways for those that are coming in to not just be present, but to be incorporated into systems and to, uh, if you're going to let somebody in, you have to make it sustainable for them to be here. Basically. Um, the U S does a great job on some of those fronts. So for example, if you're here, uh, you have access to a public education. There was a court case in 1982 that says, if you are in country, like, and you're a child, you get to go to school. Doesn't matter what your status is, like full stop. Right. Um, there, there's rumblings that maybe Texas is going to appeal that now. And I really hope that that, that would be absolutely catastrophic if they did that. But like, that's one thing that America does great is access to education. But on the other hand, if you are, even if you come through the process uh, of migration, you don't have access to a lot of public resources in the ways that U.S. nationals do. Mm-hmm. So maybe one of the, so one of the common tropes that maybe you'll hear about migration is they uh, they they use up public resources or something like this. That is manifestly not really the case. Like there are a lot of public resources that you have to be here. Even if you come through the the process legally, you have to be here for five years before you can have access to a lot of these kind of public aid sorts of things. Mm -hmm. There are some public goods that, um, that folks who migrate have access to, but a lot of times those are a matter of, uh, those are, those are because they're state funded. Right, not nationally funded or not, uh, they, yeah. they don't have access to like Medicare, for example, or they might not have access to like national programs, but they might have access to some limited state programs that are in place because the, the individual state thought that that was important to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're gonna, so I guess part one about what, what it means to be just would be to put into place, like if you're gonna let people in and you were gonna like make this a hospitable place to be, it can't just be with the entry process, but it has to be with respect to helping people flourish when they're here, right? And making those things happen. Um, it's no good giving people freedom if they don't have the way, if they don't have a way to exercise that freedom. Like right. this is a le- this is a lesson that America seems to like forget over and over again. 
Like yeah. you can't just give people freedom and then not, not any ability to actually exercise that. So this I think is true with, with migration as well. Um, and the, and the, so that's part one. The other part I think would be being willing to kind of listen to those whose lives might be materially like impacted by migration. Um, I think it's a, it's a real temptation of folks uh, like you and me that want to be very hospitable and want to like, like go all in on hospitality. But I think that what well, this is something the board has changed my mind on is that we have to be willing to listen to those who will be, who will be like impacted by that mm-hmm. and to, to say, okay, we want to be hospitable, but we also want to be just to our neighbors who are present to us as well. Right. They may not be neighbors that I agree with politically, and they may not be neighbors that um, uh, that I like have a lot in common with, but they are my neighbors. And so I have to be willing, I have to listen to them and say, okay, if I'm going to be hospitable in this way, I have to be just toward you as well, right? And I have to be willing to kind of listen to you and to say, okay, so what kind of provisions do we need to make for you? If I'm going to be hospitable over here, I, I can't do it at the expense of somebody else. Yeah. Right. right. So I think that those two things together, um, that I think that comprises like what a just immigration system looks like. Right. Yeah. We've we've talked at a political and social level, uh, but I wonder if we might refocus in a congregational level to conclude. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what you've seen and what you might encourage churches to do and think and process um, at a congregational level as we think about migration and think about how we might be hospitable people and just people in Mm -hmm. that regard. I think one thing you can do is to let to, for our churches to be places that, that can contribute to uh, like the first part that I talked about, like if you're going to, if you, if, it's one thing to be hospitable, but it's another thing to uh, make that hospitality like actual, right? So thinking about ways in which churches can actualize that hospitality in terms of uh, services that are offered, in terms of um, offering assistance that is not available through federal or sometimes even state mechanisms. Right. Um, and that can that can encompass anything from food to helping to kind of helping support uh, startup businesses to um, helping to teach language classes to uh, being present in the school system to uh, like to help kids that may not speak English as a first language to like help them to kind of get into the school and to flourish in the school. Well, like there's lots of ways I think churches can get involved. But at the congregation, one of the things that churches need to be about is to find ways for uh, to not to not just do the thing. And and I don't want to criticize like churches that have like a separate service for like Spanish language, mm-hmm. but it get, it can be the kind of thing where we're going to be hospitable towards you by giving you your space so that you're over here and you're not really a part of us. Right. Right. And I think congregations need to be, need to go further than that. Like think about what does it mean if we truly are going to confess that we are one congregation, right. Then what does that look like? Yeah. What does that look like in terms of the language that we use or the, the food that we eat or 
um, the stories that we tell or who's uh, who's leading in worship, right? I think that's the big thing that congregations can do is not just offer mercy and assistance, but to offer community as well. Yeah. Like that's the, in a a way, territorialism can take more shape than just one. That's right. That's right. It can take a form. It can take the, the obvious form the territorialism takes is in terms of like questions about national borders and all that. Right. But the, the more invisible form that territorialism takes is the, it, it, that's where hospitality comes in in a hospitality as an act of, uh, as an act of being just as well. Right. Right. We're not just going to do something that gives you the resources and then kind of like sends you off without actually inviting you in and asking that you be a part of this community. Right. And then changing our, and our, and our community being willing to change as a consequence of that. Right. Um, All of what we've talked about today has uh, invaded my brain space over the last few months uh, for a very simple and profound reason. And that is uh, Second Baptist has helped resettle two Afghan refugee families mm-hmm. um, in the, since the crisis in Afghanistan. And Miles, um, it has taxed us in every way possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had large families, uh, uh, language barriers, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, custom barriers in right. terms of male, female, um, you know, yes. who's, who's permitted in what space. That's right. Um, they arrived here with nothing. <laughs> and I mean that quite literally, I mean, clothes mm-hmm. on their back and not much else. Yep. Um, and, you know, to your point, Public education was made available to them, thanks be to God. But they also needed people in our congregation and beyond to take them to the district office and take them to school. Uh, they had no transportation. And so how do you, how you navigate public transportation in an urban setting? Um, and it's just made me think about all the challenges of mm-hmm in this case, you know, being a refugee, but even a a larger picture of migration and how vulnerable you are, right? Even Mm -hmm. in a day where modern advanced don't make you as vulnerable, maybe as in the ain't world and you left your home and people. That's right. Um, But you're still very vulnerable. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen the difficulty on faces Mm -hmm. that I, I used to not see, Ah, uh, this issue is less abstract mm-hmm. to me. I've seen courage in ways that I never had seen before. Yes. The day that these children went to school for the first day, mm-hmm. uh, and I've seen beauty. Uh, you know, our people have provided transportation to a Muslim family to a mosque on Friday so they could worship. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen the challenge and the beauty and the trickiness of all of this firsthand. And mm-hmm. uh, it's just made me think about migration in more of a humanizing way than I used to beforehand. I think one of the big questions that anyone who has questions about migration has to ask themselves is, what are the things that would cause me to leave my home? Right. Right. Because everybody has a home that we enjoy and a, a space right. that we, you know, that we we like we like stability. We like right. the normalcy of being able to go to places that are familiar to us and having our routines and having our friends. But what would what would cause you to to like leave all that? Right. 
right? And then to remember that when we're talking not just about refugees, but about migration in general, right? Right. That migration is difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways in which I think that our system is currently inhumane is that the, the structures that we have put in place in terms of borders, border walls, now drive like, anyone who is migrating to the U.S. has to pass through some incredibly uh, treacherous terrain that has increased the deaths of migrants uh, astronomically. Since mm -hmm. its inception, since its inception, and that was done on that, like that was done on purpose, right. right? That wasn't a, it wasn't accidental that walls were put up in the places that they were because part of the distance they're trying to like disincentivize people to migrate, and so they disincentivize it by by making it as dangerous as possible to do it. Right. Um, so, but when you think about that, like think about like what would cause me to do something that's not only uncomfortable or disorienting like leaving uh leaving a home but something that is downright like life-threatening right right what would cause you to do that and then to remember that when we're thinking about not just refugees but also migrant like migration in general so yeah absolutely yep well miles uh i appreciate your work in total uh, and to our listeners, if you are unaware that there is a Baptist House of Studies at Abilene Christian University, um, educate yourself. Uh, there's good things happening there. Uh, but Miles, specifically in your uh, work in terms of migration, you've been a great help to me and so many others. So uh, thank you for that work and thank you for your time on our podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, to the listeners. As we are people of the way, uh, let's pay attention to all the people on the way and be people of both hospitality and justice and um, live in such a way where people can see the way of God in our ways as well. Go in peace. As you go, go and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world, because it is. Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2bclr.com. That's the number 2bclr.com. And like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stilwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.